0: No. Okay. It is an honor and privilege to be here tonight and uh, to be with my dear friend, Dr. David Reagan. And we've had the privilege uh, of doing eight uh, television specials together on Lamb and Lion Ministries, and it has just been an honor and privilege to be with this man. I mean, uh, for those of you who support Lamb and Lion Ministries, there is not a greater ministry that you could support, and I commend you for it. Well, we're going to have an exciting weekend, and uh, as we begin tonight, I want us to think together concerning a world of religions and what makes Jesus Christ so unique. I was speaking at the University of Vienna in Austria, and a graduate student raised his hand. He said, Dr. Carlson, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, why are you Christians always sending missionaries overseas? He said, why don't you just leave people alone? He said, they're happy. They have their own society, their own culture, their own religion. He said, ultimately, all roads lead to God. He said, why are you sending missionaries overseas? You know, that's a good question to ask ourselves today. This ministry supports missions around the world. But have you ever stopped to ask yourselves the question, what is so unique about Jesus Christ, different from any religion, that you do that? In 1980, I was working on the Cambodian border in Thailand. At the time, we had some 300,000 refugees caught in a no man's land. As you may remember, after the Vietnam War, we had what came to be called the killing fields of Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge, the Pol Pot regime, murdered nearly two million of their own people. In 1979, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia, and many of the Cambodians who were left fled into Thailand, but the Thais did not want them in their country. And so 300,000 refugees were caught along the border. I'll never forget, as I worked in those refugee camps that year, I began to notice something very interesting. I wish I could take all of you with me to see with your own eyes. Because here in this Buddhist country of Thailand, with Buddhist refugees coming from Cambodia and Laos, I soon began to realize that there were no Buddhists in those refugee camps taking care of their Buddhist brothers. We had no Hindus in those camps taking care of the people. There were no Muslims there taking care of the refugees. Certainly the communists were not. They were showing us every day across the border. And if you could have been with me, you would have seen something very interesting. That the only people there taking care of those 300,000 refugees, you know who they were? They're all Christians. And Christian mission organizations, Christian relief organizations like World Vision and Food for the Hungry and Christian World Relief and on and on. I asked the man in charge of all the relief work in Thailand, I said, sir, explain something to me. I said, why? I said, why in a Buddhist country with Buddhist refugees are there no Buddhists here taking care of their Buddhist brothers? And I'll never forget the man who had lived in Thailand for 40 years. He looked at me and he said, Ron, he said, have you ever seen what Buddhism does to a nation or a people? He said, Buddha taught that each man is to be an island unto himself. Buddha said, if someone is suffering, that is their karma. And you are not to interfere with another person's karma, Because they are purging themselves through suffering and reincarnation. Buddha said, you are to be an island unto yourself. He said, Ron, the only people that have a reason to be here today taking care of these refugees are Christians who understand the value of human life. That these people are so valuable, created in the very image of God. So valuable that Jesus Christ died for each and every one of us. He said, you find that value for human life in no other religion in no other philosophy but Jesus Christ. Dr. E.W. Tozer, in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, makes this statement in the introduction. He says that the history of mankind will positively demonstrate that no society or people has ever risen above its religion. And he says man's history will show that no religion is ever greater than its concept of God. What Dr. Tozer was saying was this, that what a person thinks about God, what your concept of God is tonight, will directly determine how you live in regards to your value of human individuals, your basis of morality, even your standard of living. You know, if I could take you with me around the world this evening, we could quickly discover what a person's religion and concept of God produces in everyday life, and what is so unique about Jesus Christ. If we were to go, for example, to that great subcontinent of Asia, the country of India, do you know in India this this evening, think about this, folks, do you know there are more people in India than in all of Africa, South America, and Australia combined? Do you know those three continents put together do not have as many people as the nation of India, over 1,000 million people in India tonight? Now, in India, the basic religion is known as what? It's known as Hinduism. And in Hinduism, the basic concept of God is what is known as monism or pantheism. Now, in Hinduism, they teach that everything in the universe is God. They say that the stars are God, the clouds are God, the trees are God, the dirt is God, you're God, I'm God. Everything is God, and God, by definition, is impersonal. Now, I want you to think with me this evening. Dr. Tozer says what a person thinks about God will determine how they live. If everything is God and God is impersonal, if the dirt is God and you are God, what do you become equal with? And one of the problems in India has always been this. That Hinduism has never been able to raise the level of nature to the level of men and women. But it always ends up devaluing men and women to the level of nature. During the war with Bangladesh, refugees were flooding into Kathmandu, Nepal. Nepal, which is the only official Hindu country in the world. And they asked the foreign minister of Nepal, they said, Sir, why are you not caring for these refugees flooding into your country? His reply, which was recorded in the United Nations Journal, was simply this, he said, quote, he said, what reason on earth do we have to care for these people? What reason on earth if they're all equal with dirt? The United Nations reported that last year India grew enough grain to feed its entire population and export. But the United Nations also reported that last year between one-fourth and one-third of India's grain crop was eaten by rats. In fact, you may have seen the Discovery Channel program last fall on the Rats of India, in which they now estimate that there are three times more rats in India than the population, nearly three billion rats, not mice, rats, which last year consumed nearly a third of their grain crop. But as they pointed out, because of their religion and their concept of God, they will not kill the rats because it may be somebody's reincarnated uncle or aunt. And so sadly, many of the children starve to death on the streets. You see, friends, as you go around the world, you quickly discover that most of the world's problems tonight are not simply economic or technological. But they, in fact, are basic spiritual problems based upon what a person believes about God. The ultimate goal in India is to achieve a spiritual transcendence where one finally osmosis and merges into this impersonal universe they call God. I was speaking in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And you can go just north of the capital of Malaysia to the famous Batu Caves. And I watched there as the Hindus would go into their meditative trance. And then the Hindus would take these sharp skewers. They're like sharp knitting needles, about 12 inches long. And I, I watched as they would first take their tongues and they pull out their tongue as far as they could, and then they would jab the knitting needle down through the middle of their tongue so they could not pull it back in their mouth. I then watch as they take another sharp skewer and they'll jab it through their jaw and they'll pull it out the other side. And then I watch as they took long metal poles three to four feet long with big fishing hooks on the end, and they'll dig these into their flesh on the front and on the back of their bodies. And as the weight of these metal poles tear their flesh, the Hindus are then required to climb 272 steps up to the Batu Caves where they go in and they bow down and worship the idol of the python, the serpent, the snake, seeking to gain penance and forgiveness so that somehow they might become part of this impersonal universe which they call God. But friends, as I always share with them, you need to understand that an impersonal universe never loved or cared about anyone. Please understand, only a personal creator loves and cares for his creation. We could go this evening to the Middle East and North Africa. We find there the basic religion known as Islam. Islam is the religion Muslims or Muslims are the people. Muhammad is their prophet, Allah is their God. In the Quran, which is their holy book, the Quran tells us that God has 99 names. And if you were to go this evening to Riyadh or Damascus, go to Cairo, Baghdad, uh, you'll see many of the Muslim men walking down the street, they'll carry with them a string of 33 beads. You'll often see this on the news. They'll either have it in their hand or in their pocket, and a, a Muslim man will go through that string of 33 beads, three times each day, naming off the 99 names for God that are found in the Quran. Now, what is interesting about those 99 names, uh, most of them are adjectives, is that not one of those names is that God is a God of love. Nowhere in the Quran does it say that God is our heavenly Father. Rather, what you find in Islam is they say that God is a God of sheer power who wills and determines everything that happens on earth. Man has no free choice. And this concept of God produces today a grave fatalistic outlook throughout the Middle East. Fatalism dominates everything. You hear the Muslim repeatedly say, Allah wills whatever Allah wills, man has no choice. I lived and studied for two years in the Middle East. When I was a student at Jerusalem University College in Israel, I spent almost every weekend in the Gaza Strip with my Palestinian friends. I'll never forget one weekend I was in a Palestinian village up in the hills above Gaza, and Saturday morning I went down to the creek to get drinking water for the family I was staying with. And I'll never forget here was a man going to the bathroom in the creek, and about five yards down the creek, another man was getting drinking water for his family. And I said to the man, I said, sir, I said, "Uh, don't you know you'll get dysentery, uh, hepatitis, uh, amoeba, typhoid, uh, cholera, you know, something. And with that fatalistic stare, which is so common in the Middle East, the man looked up to me and he said, "Whatever Allah wills. If I get sick, it's Allah's will. If I die, it's Allah's will. Allah determines everything. Man has no choice." I was speaking in Eritrea, northern Ethiopia, just before the civil war broke out between Somalia and Sudan. There, in Asmara, the capital, some of the worst poverty ever seen in the world. That Muslim capital, no sanitation, human waste. Lying in the streets, children playing in it. Four or five flies sucking at the mucus of their eyes. Children are so used to it, they don't even brush the flies away any longer. And you say to the Muslim, why don't they clean it up? They say, why should we? Allah wills and determines everything. Man has no choice. When a Muslim prays, you know, he prays five times a day facing Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Now, the reason a Muslim prays five times a day facing Mecca is not only to show his allegiance to Arabia but you see in Islam they say that man was not born with sin but man is merely forgetful and so a Muslim will pray five times a day to help him to remember to do the laws and the commands of Allah you see in Islam a Muslim cannot know God in a personal relationship in Islam they say that God is so transcendent so far removed that a Muslim can never know God personally for the Muslim, he is told he can only know the laws of God, the commands of God that have been given through the prophets, but he cannot know God himself. And that's why if you ever hear a Muslim pray in the mosque on Fridays or in daily prayers, they always pray the same words. The Muslim will always pray, God, have mercy on me. Now, the reason a Muslim will pray for mercy five times a day is because he does not know the grace of God. A Muslim does not know that God is our Heavenly Father who loves us, who's provided a Savior for man's sin. For the Muslim, he is told in the Quran that on the day of judgment, Allah is going to weigh his good and bad deeds in a balancing scale. But he's never quite sure he's doing enough good deeds to outweigh the bad, and so he pleads for mercy five times a day because he does not know the grace of God. Let me also say this. Since 9-11, and especially right after 9-11, I was so deeply disturbed by so much of the nonsense I heard on cable television, even coming from our political leaders, that said that Christians, Jews, Muslims, we all worship the same God just by a different name. Anybody ever heard that one before? Folks, don't ever equate the God of the Bible with Allah. Allah is not the God of the Bible. All you have to do is study Islamic history as I did. And you soon realize that not only in reading the Quran is Allah completely contrary to the God of the Bible and his attributes of nature. But if you study history, you find that when Muhammad was born in the 6th century there in Mecca, the Kaaba, where they make the annual Hajj, already existed. The Kaaba there with the black cubicle building. And every year, the Arabs would make a pilgrimage there because they had set up there in the Kaaba, before Muhammad was even born, 360 tribal deities. Each of the tribes of Arabia worshipped a different deity. The tribe that Muhammad was born into, the Kresh tribe, they were devoted to the worship of the moon god whose personal name was Allah. What Muhammad did, he went into Mecca and told the other Arab tribes that they were to destroy their tribal deities and make his tribal deity Allah, the moon god, the supreme (laughs) deity. Read your history. They drove him out of Mecca in 622 AD. It's interesting to me when I talk to Muslims they like to tell you that Muhammad was a great prophet. Folks, the Arabs never accept him as a prophet. They drove him out of Mecca. In 622 AD he fled for his life 280 miles north to Medina. And in Medina there was a large community of Jews and Christians. He sought to gain their favor. And when they turned and said that they would not accept him as a prophet, you see this radical shift take place in the Quran, where Muhammad turns against the Jews and Christians. In fact, one of the most famous stories in Islamic history is the day that Muhammad rounded up 900 Jewish leaders in Medina, had them beheaded, their bodies thrown into a ditch and set on fire. Now understand that Muslims believe that Muhammad was the perfect example as to how Islam was to be lived out. When you see the hatred of the Muslims against the Jewish nation today and hear Ahmadinejad claiming that it is his goal and desire to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, understand he is following what he believes is the perfect example, Muhammad himself, who in one day beheaded 900 Jewish leaders. And after seven years in Medina, Muhammad raised up an army of 10,000 men. And having received revelations from a so-called angel of light that any of his warriors who would die in a holy jihad, fighting in the cause of Islam, if they were to die in jihad, they would receive 72 black-eyed virgins to serve their desires. He led them back to Mecca in 629 A.D. They laid, laid siege to Mecca and told the people they either convert or die by the sword. That is why today on the flag of Saudi Arabia, what do you have? You have the Islamic sword with the words, There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. It became known as the religion of the sword. And after he had destroyed all the other tribal deities, he made his tribal deity Allah, the moon god, the supreme deity. That is why, folks, what do you find today on top of every mosque, every minaret around the world? What sits on top of every mosque? A crescent moon. You ever wonder why they put the moon on top of the mosque? It's fascinating. I ask Muslims all the time. Why do you have the moon on top of their mosque? They have no idea. It's because Allah was a pagan 7th century moon idol. Folks, never equate the God of the Bible with a pagan moon idol. God doesn't share his glory with pagan idols. But you go around the world. One of the basic religions we find universally around the world is a religion known as animism. Animism is the belief that spirits animate or into all nature. They live in the rocks, the trees, the rivers. I wish I could take you with me tonight to a typical animistic tribe. During the 1980s, my family and I were missionaries in Southeast Asia. And if I could take you with me, for example, down to Erie Jaya next to Papua New Guinea, and we were to walk, for example, into the Donny Village, you'd all notice something immediately. The first thing you notice when you walk into the village is, first of all, very few of the women have fingers. See, every time someone dies in that village, the women are required to take a mallet and chop off another finger at the knuckle, seeking to appease the evil spirits in nature. When someone dies in that village, they'll first take the body and they put it up on a bamboo wreck in the hot humid sun. They let it rot for three days until the maggots are crawling all over it. And then you'll watch on the fourth day as the people of the village will go and eat the flesh and the maggots until they often vomit for days afterwards, seeking to appease the evil spirits in nature. Oh, it doesn't matter what you believe, all religions are basically the same. Have you ever heard somebody say that? That's one of the most common statements I hear today as I speak on universities. Students who say, it doesn't matter what you believe, all religions are basically the same. Friends, next time you hear somebody tell you that, you will know immediately you've met somebody who is totally naive. Not only naive, but ignorant of anthropology, of history, of philosophy, of religion. You see, friends, there is something very unique about Jesus Christ. There is something very unique about Christianity, different from any religion in the world. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that universally men and women are without excuse. He says universally... People know there is a God. People have no excuse. In Romans 1, verse 20, he says, We know there is a God, first of all, by what we see in creation, that this world is not a product of evolutionary chance, but was made by a master designer, a creator. Just before the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, I was invited at the end of the 1980s and 87 to, by Campus Crusade for Christ, to speak in the major universities of communist Poland in Warsaw and Krakow and Poznan on the scientific evidence regarding creation. It was always an interesting topic as I spoke through the former Soviet Union when you realize that evolution was the mantra of the Communist Party, that man was simply an animal that the state could manipulate. And I forget, at the University of Poznan there on the East German border, after one of my lectures, a graduate student in engineering and physics came up to me. He said, Dr. Carlson, he says, I don't care what you say. He said, I'm still going to believe in evolution. And I rolled up my shirt sleeve that evening, and I showed him my wristwatch. I said, you see this watch here? Went down to a junkyard. Found some old, rusty, bent-up, twisted pieces of metal and iron. And I, I threw them into a shoebox and I started shaking it. Shook it for two weeks, two months, six months, eight months, kept shaking it, all of a sudden, Lam! all the pieces flew together. Started ticking off 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, telling the day and date, all by chance, amazing. Well, this graduate student engineering laughed at me. He said, that's impossible. I said, you mean to tell me? that this watch, by chance, is impossible? And yet you will tell me that this eye, with season in 3D in color, this brain that is greater than any computer on Earth, a three-pound brain that has 120 billion cells, 130 trillion electronic chemical connections, is all product of chance? I submit to you, friends, that it takes far more faith To believe in evolution, then it does believe in a divine designer, a creator. It's no wonder the Bible says only a fool would say in his heart, there is no God. But Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to say, secondly, we know there is a God. Not only by what we see in creation, but he says we know there is a God because God placed in the heart of every person a desire to know him. You know, it's very interesting, folks, that no matter where you go in this world, no matter how sophisticated or primitive the society, people have a desire to know God. Now, where do we get that desire if we are simply products of impersonal chance? But you see, God, who is personal, created us as personal beings to live in a personal relationship with him. But Paul goes on in the New Testament to say, Thirdly, we know there is a God because God has broken into human history. God split history into BC and AD, and He personally revealed Himself to us. I just got home this last month from Cuba, and I've been in Cuba on three different occasions, and we've had the privilege of training now over 3,000 Cuban pastors and church leaders all over the island. And we need to be praying for our Cuban brothers and sisters. Uh, Fidel has simply destroyed the country economically. And it's the 50th anniversary of the revolution in 59. And they say when Fidel came to power, he, he offered change. He was going to bring change to the island. And the first thing he did was he nationalized the banks. And then he nationalized the corporations. <laughs> now everybody gets paid by the government. And everybody gets paid. It doesn't matter whether you're an electrician, a carpenter, a pastor, a teacher. Everybody gets $12 a month. That's what they live on in Cuba, $12 a month. And they give you a ration card. Each person's allowed five pounds of beans and five pounds of rice a month. That's what they're living on. Most Cubans are down to rice and beans once a day. Socialism has destroyed the country. Amer- America better wake up. <laughs> But the one thing holding the country together is the church of Jesus Christ is growing like wildfire. And I was speaking in churches down there uh, one Sunday on over 3,000 people jammed into a church in Gamaquay, Cuba. Another church we were in, in by almost over 2,000 people jammed in Sunday morning. Hunger for the word of God over Cuba. It's exciting how the church is growing. My book, Fast Facts on False Teachings, which is out on the table in the foyer, it's the first Christian book that's been allowed to be printed in Cuba since the revolution 1959. We've now printed in Spanish over 8,000 copies printed in Cuba. I mean, it's a real miracle how it happened. And uh, God's still involved in doing miracles, folks. First time I uh, went into Cuba, uh, they had invited me to speak to 250 key pastors from 14 different denominations. And uh, they wanted uh, me to come and speak on the cults and they were having real problems with different cultic groups and false religions and my book Fast Facts and False Teachings. I thought, Lord, it's in Spanish. Is there any way I could bring it into Cuba? And they had told me that the Cuban government does not allow anybody to bring any more than three books of anything into the country. Well, I knew that my God was bigger than Fidel. And I went to Walmart and I got two soft-sided suitcases. I was able to Put 125 uh, copies of my book in each suitcase uh, in Spanish and 250 books for the 250 pastors. I was going to speak to the key leaders from all over Cuba and uh, checked it for Havana. Got to Havana. The carousel went around, old Russian carousel, and my suitcase with my clothes came off. Everybody else's suitcases came off. They were going through customs, and I could see the Cuban soldiers were opening everybody's suitcases, going through everything, looking for any anything. They weren't allowed to bring in. And I'm thinking, Lord, I don't know how you're going to get 250 books through the Cuban soldiers. Finally, the carousel stops, and my two suitcases with the 250 books never came off. And everybody else had gone through customs. I'm standing there alone in the baggage area. and So I go to the end of the carousel, and I pull back the flap and look into the storage area, and here's a big X-ray machine. They'd been X-raying everybody's bags coming into Cuba. Sitting on top of the X-ray machine were my two suitcases with my 250 books. And I'm thinking to myself, now what would Dr. Reagan do? (laughs) You know, I thought he'd probably go get the books. And I'm looking under there, and I'm looking back there, and it was one of those God moments. You know, we have a lot of God moments. And it happened to be 12 noon, and and the Cuban soldiers who had unloaded the plane, uh, they had left for lunch, and there was nobody back there. And I'm looking around, there's nobody there. And I thought... Well, they just probably forgot to put them back on the carousel. I got down on my hands and knees. I crawled through the opening, ran back, grabbed my two suitcases off the x-ray machine, threw them under the opening, crawled back under the hole, pulled up the handles, and here I got three big suitcases now. And there was a partition. They had not seen me do this, and the soldiers on customs were on the other side of the partition. I come walking up. And when I come walking up, the Cuban soldiers are visibly angry at me. I mean, visibly mad. And I'm praying the whole time, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. And just praying, somehow, God, you're going to have to help me. And I walk up, and they are physically angry. And what they were angry about is I had delayed them from going to lunch. (laughs) And I walk up, and they said, hurry, just go, get through. And I just walked right through. They never looked at my suitcases. We got to the seminar. I spoke for a week, a wonderful time with these pastors. And at the end of the seminar, I gave them each a copy of my book in Spanish. And they said, how in the world did you get this into Cuba? And uh, I got to tell you real quickly what happened. It got, started being passed around Cuba. And they said, we'd like to print this. And one of the ways Fidel has maintained control is he took away everybody's printing presses in Cuba. Nobody's allowed to print anything except the communist government. But there's one church uh, that's been allowed to have a little printing press in their basement for Sunday school material, and the communists are aware of it. And, and so the pastors, real brave Baptist pastors, they, uh, they said, we want to print this. And I got the plates down to them, and, and uh, they started buying up all the paper in Cuba. They wanted to buy up 200,000 sheets of paper, and I had sent them down money to buy up the paper, and they were buying up all, the, there's not a lot of paper in Cuba. Well, it wasn't long before the communists discovered somebody in Cuba was buying up all the paper. They traced it to these three pastors, and they called them to Havana, to the communist headquarters. And the pastors assumed they were going to be thrown in jail. They had spent a lot of time in jail, and they were called before the minister of religious affairs, Fidel's right-hand person, for the last 50 years. And they decided to take an aggressive stand. They handed them a copy of my book in Spanish, and they said, this is what we want to print The head of religious affairs for the communist government starts thumbing through my book. i got chapters on cults, world religions, evolution, atheism. And they're looking through and all of a sudden he stops. And the head of religious affairs, Fidel's right-hand man, he starts reading the book. They don't know what he's reading. The three of them are sitting in front of him. And for 45 minutes, he reads my book. Come to find out, it was another God moment. That afternoon... That very afternoon, the president of the Mormon church in Salt Lake City was flying in on a private jet with his two top officials from Salt Lake City. they have been trying to get Mormon missionaries into Cuba because Fidel hasn't allowed any new religions in that weren't there in 59. They were flying in that afternoon to meet with the minister of religious affairs. He didn't know anything about Mormonism. He gets this book in the morning, he's thumbing through it, finds a chapter on Mormonism, sits there for 45 minutes and reads the whole chapter. That afternoon, folks, the president of the Mormon Church, Gordon B. Hinckley, flies in to Havana, meets with the religious Minister of Religious Affairs. Re- Minister of Religious Affairs tells the President of the Mormon Church, You guys are a cult, we're not letting you into our country and kicked them out. God's still in the business, apart in the Red Sea, folks, and the walls of Jericho are still coming down in ways that we could never plan or anticipate. But Paul goes on the New Testament. He says, thirdly, we know there is a God because God broke into human history. God split history into B.C. and A.D., and he personally revealed himself to us. When I was with these Cuban pastors, I shared with them one of my favorite stories I've shared around the world. It's one of those great stories that no matter what culture you're in, people identify with it. And I told him about the father and son who were walking down a dirt path one day, and they, they came upon an anthill that somebody had stepped on and smashed those ants. I don't know, do you have ants in Texas? <laughs> and uh, the little boy who was four years old, he looked up to his daddy and said, Daddy, wouldn't it be good if we could go down and, and tell those ants we love them? You know, tell those ants we care about them and help them with their sick and their wounded? And the father, he put his arm around his little boy, and he said, Son, son, the only way that we could tell those ants that we love them, that we care about them, is to become an ant, to live like an ant and talk like an ant, and and then by our lives, they would know what we are like. You see, 2,000 years ago, God looked down on a world that he created, a world that he loved. And God says, I want to tell you how much I love you. How is God going to do that? And God said, I will become a man. And I will live like a man and talk like a man. And by my life, you will know what I am like. But before he did this, he began to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah through the Jewish nation. By giving us in the Old Testament over 300 prophecies, 67 major prophecies, 270 minor prophecies and ramifications in the Old Testament concerning who the Messiah was going to be, so there would be no mistake. I was recently on a flight from Los Angeles to Auckland, New Zealand, and had been invited to speak in all the major universities of Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch uh, by the National Apologetic Society of New Zealand and. It's always interesting when you get on a plane for 11 hours to see who you're going to be sitting next to. And uh, we were on a big 747, and I was, uh, my son and I, uh, my son who's a pastor in the Twin Cities, uh, uh, I was sitting on the aisle, and he was sitting across from me on the other aisle. And next to me in the center in the window seat, I sat down for an 11-hour flight, and sitting next to me was a 75-year-old Jewish couple from Long Island, New York. 75-year-old Jewish couple from Long Island, New York, both PhDs in sociology. I never forget, the man had a tattoo in his arm where, as a child, he had been in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And we began to talk, and I was asking why they were going to New Zealand, and and just a dear couple. We had a wonderful conversation, and, and as we were talking... Uh, Uh, When they discovered that I had spent a year studying at Jerusalem University College in Israel, boy, that opened up all kinds of uh, conversation about the Jewish nation and Israel, and and we just had a wonderful time. Well, we were about an hour into the flight, and I thought, you know, I might as well just go to the heart of the issue, you know? (laughs) And they were a dear couple. We were having a wonderful conversation. And I I said to them, I said, when they found out, you know, I told them what I did and, and who I was, and... I said, can I ask you a question I've often wondered? They said, sure. I said, tell me, I said, why is it so difficult for Jews to accept Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah? You know, figure figured I might as well just go to the heart of the issue. (laughs) You know, why is it so difficult for Jews to accept Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah? And Marty Goetz was talking about his own family. And uh, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish prophets gave us over 300 prophecies concerning who the Messiah was going to be so there would be no mistake. They said, what do you mean? Well, I got out the Bible. And we started going through the Bible there. We had an 11-hour flight. We went to the Jewish Scriptures. We went back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 tells us that this one who is coming is going to be of the seed of a woman. Now, that was unique for everyone else was of the seed of a man, but this one would not have a human father. We then read in Genesis that Noah had three sons. What were their names? Ham, Shem, Japheth. Watch what God does. God eliminates two-thirds of the nations of the world. And he tells us that through the line of Shem, he would bring his anointed. We then read in Genesis 11 and Genesis 17 that one from the line of Shem, out of the ear of the Chaldees, one whose name is Abraham, says out of Abraham will come forth the Messiah, and it says through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We then read in Genesis that Abraham had two sons. What were their names? Isaac and Ishmael. Watch what God does. God eliminates 50% of the descendants of Abraham, and he tells us that through the line of Isaac he would bring his anointed. We then read in Genesis that Isaac had two sons. What were their names? Jacob and Esau. Watch what God does. God eliminates 50% of the descendants of Isaac, and he tells us that through the line of of Jacob, he would bring his anointed. In Genesis 49, we then read that Jacob had 12 sons. What were their names? (laughs) The, The 12 tribes of Israel. Now watch what God does. God eliminates 11 twelfths of the descendants of Jacob and he tells us that through the line of through the line of Judah he would bring his Messiah. We then read in Isaiah chapter 11 it says one from the tribe of Judah from the written offspring of Jesse out of Jesse will come forth the Messiah. We then turn to first Samuel 17 and it tells us that Jesse had eight sons. Watch what God does. God eliminates seven eighths of the descendants of Jesse, and He tells us that through the line of, through the line of David, He would bring His anointing. We then turn over to Micah chapter five verse two. Micah chapter five verse two says, "This one who is coming, whose going forth, are from all eternity. He's going to be born in that little town of Bethlehem, less than one thousand population at the time." We then turn over to Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen. Isaiah 7.14 says that a virgin shall conceive. Now, folks, that eliminates a lot of people. <laughs> that a virgin will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, God with us. We then turn over to Isaiah 9.6. Very interesting passage we read at Christmas. Isaiah 9.6 says a child will be born, but that child is going to be a son who is given. And his name will be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We then turn over to Isaiah 52 and 53. It says that he's going to be rejected by his own people, the Jews, but accepted by his enemies, the Gentiles. You know, folks, that eliminates a lot of Jewish leaders. We then read in Zechariah, that he's going to be betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, not 29, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver, which is interesting when gold was the monetary standard of the day. David, writing 1,000 B.C. in Psalm 22, tells us he's going to be crucified, which is interesting, folks, because crucifixion was never practiced until 200 B.C. It was never practiced in a Jewish providence until 63 B.C. And God begins to pinpoint out through human history Precisely who the Messiah was going to be. This Jewish couple, they kept saying to me, you mean that's in our Bible? That's in our Bible? Here they were, 75-year-old PhDs, Jews from Long Island, had never in their life had anybody explain to them Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. They kept saying, that's in our Bible? Over 300 prophecies. Now I've just given you 13 Do you know mathematicians have figured out that the probability of having just eight of those prophecies fulfilled in one person is the same probability as if you were to take the entire state of Texas, cover cover the entire state three feet deep with silver dollars. The entire state three feet deep with silver dollars. On one of those silver dollars, place an X, throw it down the middle of Texas, bulldoze it under if you like, then take a Texan. Put a blindfold on him. Spin them around in circles. Set them out on the stake, cover three feet deep with silver dollars. Do you know the probability that he would pick the one with the X on on the first pick is the same probability that only eight of those prophecies will be fulfilled in one person. Folks, you want to know something? All 300 plus were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Please understand, folks. You have no excuse historically for rejecting Jesus Christ. People often ask me, you know, what is so unique about Jesus Christ? He possessed no certificates or degrees. He never traveled farther than 150 miles from where he was born. He he lived and moved among very common people. He was not an author. He wrote no books, he composed no poems, he compiled no documents, he edited no newspapers. He contributed no periodicals. The only sentence he ever wrote was a single line in the sand, which disappeared the same day. No lever was preserved. He never used a fountain pen or a typewriter or a Microsoft Word. But, folks, do you know that more books have been written about him and his words than any other man? He has affected the lives of more people than all the authors of all the ages put together. The story of his life has now been translated in over 2,500 languages and is read yearly by billions of people. He was not an orator, and yet no person ever spoke like this man. His discourses have become the theme of millions of addresses. His words are simple and clear. Very few adjectives are used, and yet his senses abound with beauty, meaning, and grace. In fact, today, his sayings are hammered into polished marble. They're chiseled into imperishable granite. They're wrought into enduring bronze tablets. They're fashioned in stained glass windows of numberless churches. They're etched in rich mosaics upon temple walls, and they are set today in arch domes of colossal cathedrals. His words are literary gems. In fact, he stands today as an equal seer of all of literature, Shakespeare, Milton, Emerson, folks, they all bow their heads in his presence, recognizing a superior. He was not a poet, and yet he has inspired thousands of poets out of their most sublime expressions. He was not an artist or a sculptor or a painter, and yet he was the inspiration for Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Hoffman, and the list goes on and on. He was not a musician. And yet he was inspiration for Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Bach, Handel, Marty Goetz, Jack Hollingsworth. Pretty good company. He was not a doctor. And yet he healed the sick. He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He cleansed the leopard and, folks, he raised the dead. He was not a statesman. You know, he never held nor aspired to official position. He did not delve into politics, but he did found a kingdom. He was not a general, and yet he became the conqueror of the world. And a war or in peace, in good times or bad, it remains true to this day, folks, that no single word grips the hearts of men like the name of Jesus. Amen. And to say that history bears his imprint is put it much too mildly. Lecky, the great historian, speaks without exaggeration when he declares, quote, he says, the three short years of Christ's active life has done more to regenerate mankind than any other influence that has ever been felt upon this earth. And if anyone here doubts that tonight, just try to imagine what it would be like in this world if the name of Jesus were to be torn from us and with it everything for which it stands. Life is hard enough, but folks, it would be intolerable without the message of Christmas. It would be unbearable without the joy of Easter. There is something about that name. You see, the Bible says that we are created in the very image of God. Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, I can prove to every one of you here tonight, I can prove it, that you are valuable and that you are loved in the eyes of God. I can prove it. If you have your Bibles, it's found in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans 5, 8 says this, But God proved his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God proved his love for you and for me. Now, while we were sinners in rebellion against him, God loved you so much that Jesus Christ died for you. Folks, please understand when Jesus Christ died on that cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ did not die for evolved pond scum. Jesus Christ did not die for impersonal dirt. Jesus Christ died for you and for me because He made you, He created you, He loves you. And he desires to have a personal relationship with every one of you. I got to close. I'm just warming up. Let me just close with this. My freshman year in college, I lived with a fellow from Thailand who had been a Buddhist till he was 18. He'd become a Christian, was studying here in the States. We happened to be roommates. And I asked him one day, I said, Lou, explain to me why you became a Christian. I said, tell me, what is the difference between Buddhism and Christianity? And he put it this way. He said, Ron, when I was a Buddhist, it was like I was drowning in a big lake and I did not know how to swim. He said, I was going under for the third time. And he said, Buddha walked up to the edge of the lake. And Buddha began to teach me how to swim. Buddha said, start moving your arms and legs. But Buddha said, you must make it to shore yourself. He said, then Jesus Christ walked up to the edge of the lake. But he said, Jesus Christ did not stop there. But he said, Jesus Christ dove into that lake and he swam out and he rescued me. And he brought me to shore. And after he brought me to shore, well, then he taught me how to swim so I could go back and rescue others. You see, friends, there's a vast difference, as we conclude tonight, between Christianity and any religion. Please understand, Christianity is not a religion. What are the religions of the world? You study religion, folks, as I have. And you find that all the religions of the world are men and women's attempts to reach God. That's what religion is. Religion is people trying to get to God through their rituals, through their sacrifices, through their good works, through their traditions, through their money. But the Bible says that all of our righteousness put together is as filthy rags before a holy God. See, the Bible says that God is holy that men and women are affected with a spiritual disease called sin that separates us from a holy God. So people have been trying to create all kinds of religions, trying to get back to God, but they're never able to come into the presence of a holy God because of their sin. You see, the great truth of Christianity, folks, is this. It's Romans 5.8. But God proved his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ came, and died for us. See, religion is men and women trying to get to God. Christianity, true Christianity, is God reaching down to men and women and making a way through his shed blood on Calvary's cross that we could have our sins washed and cleansed and forgiven and we could be restored back into that personal relationship with God, our creator, for which we were made. See, that's why they call it the gospel. The gospel means what? It means good news. Friends, the gospel is very good news to people caught up in man-made religions and man-made cults and man-made philosophies. It's good news because the Bible says it is the gift, the gift of God. And why does the Bible say it's a gift? For two reasons. It's a gift because you cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. You cannot buy it. It's a gift. And why is it a gift? It's a gift because it's already been bought and paid for. When Jesus Christ took your sin, he took my sin. He nailed it to the cross. And he covered it with his own blood as the ultimate payment, the infinite sacrifice, once for all time, Hebrews 10.10 says. And Jesus said, it is what? It is finished. It is finished. And he stamped, paid in full. Paid in full. There was nothing more that you could do. He paid it all. And he says, I now have a gift. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's a gift. And he says, anyone who will receive that gift by faith. He says, the old things will be washed away. And behold, all things become fresh and new. As we begin this conference and close tonight, I simply ask you the question. Have you received the gift? That Jesus Christ bought for you. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we love you tonight, and we thank you for the tremendous good news of the gift. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, I'd even pray tonight, if there is any person sitting here tonight who has never invited Jesus Christ to be their personal Lord and Savior, if there's someone who has never received the gift that you bought for them, that Lord, even in the quiet of this moment, they would open their heart to you and invite Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their Savior, And as our heads are bowed tonight, let me just ask you to close your eyes and examine your own life. In a crowd like this, there may be someone here who says, Ron, I don't know if I've ever personally received the gift. But maybe God's been speaking to your heart tonight. You've listened to Marty Goetz sing about his own testimony of discovering the gift. Maybe God's been touching your heart and you say, tonight I need to for the first time, find the gift. It's as simple as a prayer. prayer is talking with God. And where you're sitting right now, you might just quietly talk with God. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. And you might just simply pray this prayer with me just quietly. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me so very much. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin." And Lord, tonight, I open the door of my heart to you. And Jesus, I invite you to be my Lord and my Savior. Wash me and cleanse me and forgive me of all my sin. This morning, I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for beginning a new life in me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for the gift of your daily presence with me. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Lord, may I love you more each day as you love me so very much. In Jesus' precious name, amen.